Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It will be found on the screen behind me, and it's also on page 287 in your pew Bible. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month, and all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Covenant, the Tent of Meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord, to, of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the most holy place, excuse me, from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is God's word. Christmas is a time that we celebrate the incarnation, God becoming man in order to dwell with us. It's the ultimate declaration that God desires to be with us. But for some people, that's not enough. They would prefer to see God physically and tangibly here and now. they ask the question, if God is real, why doesn't he show himself? So to answer that question, I went on my computer, typed in, why doesn't God show himself? And the first respondent posted this. Wouldn't that solve all the problems of the world? He would show up and tell us exactly what he wants everyone to do, No one would go to hell for believing in the wrong religion. It would stop all the fundies from killing other people for believing in the wrong thing. And it would bring peace to the world. What a simple solution. Now that rang familiar to me because a few years back I was having a conversation with a, a man at the gym. And he was an atheist, so I asked him, If there was a God, what would you expect of him? His reply was, I would expect God to actually be here to live among us so that he could answer our questions and our doubts and not leave this supposedly divine book which everyone argues about. I'm sure you've heard many people say, if I could see God, 
I would believe. This Advent series, in part, addresses that question. But I hope it is for everyone, believer and unbeliever, that we might experience the very presence of God in a greater, greater way. Let's pray. Lord, only your Spirit could do what I just said our desire is. So we pray no matter where we are on this spiritual journey, that you might meet us with a true sense of your, your presence, a greater and richer realization of who Jesus Christ is, what he has come and done for us. Lord, use your verses, your truths today to minister your presence to our hearts and lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. The reason we don't see God has nothing to do with God's existence, his plan, or his desire. One of God's greatest desires is to be present with us. Pastor Brandon brought that out at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. The garden itself was the first temple. And Brandon established that through showing the the various pictures of creation in the temple itself. He brought us also through the fact that God created us in his image, in his glory, that we might fill the earth with his glory, with his presence. And also noted that God manifested his presence in the garden by walking in the cool of the day. As he put it, we were made to enjoy God's unmediated presence. And that's grounded in the very nature of God himself. God wants to be with us because he is a God of love. Pastor Kevin DeYoung put it this way. With a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God created out of the overflow of the perfect love that has always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who ever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. What he's saying there is God has always been a relational God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has had an eternal relationship of mutual love and mutual honor, glorification, where they, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, treasure each other. That's the very essence of his being. And so when he creates, he creates out of who he is, a relational God. He creates people to have a relationship with him. We often say about Christianity, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship with God. The reason for that is God has always been about relationship. And so it is his desire that he be present with us. It's sin that has created the veil, the barrier between us and God's presence. 
Still, even though the, the sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve and God cast them out of the garden, cast them away from his presence, God still manifested himself in special ways to faithful individuals. He appeared to Abraham as the angel of the Lord. and He appeared to Moses in a burning bush and to Joshua as the commander. Now, there's a danger if God showed himself to each of us in, in different ways. Because none of these theophanies communicate the panorama of who God is. Each gives us just a little taste one aspect, a characteristic of God. And especially if he appeared to the, those who were unfaithful, we are sure that the whole nature of God would be twisted. It's the reason God gives in the commandments. He said, you will make no graven image of me. Why? Because there is no image that can capture the totality of God. Instead, when we create an image, we create something that we think God is, not who he truly is. It is something that is limited in space and time when God is not limited by space or time. An image is something we create in many ways to have a tangible expression of the God who might serve us. And though God is a servant of us, he's called us ultimately to serve him. So God has shown himself across the Old Testament. But the theophanies of God truly coalesce and come together in the great display of God as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Ultimately, that pillar moves into the tabernacle and into the temple. So we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So the pillar appears to Israel after Pharaoh says, Then your people go. And as the Israelites leave, the pillar of cloud comes to guide them toward the Red Sea. When Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his armies after them, God's presence turns into a pillar of fire to block their ascent upon the Israelites. He then leads them through the parted Red Sea. And what we see in this this picture is as God guides them through the wilderness by day, a cloud, by night, a fire, we see the protective care of God. Because as they travel across the desert, it's, it's scorching hot during the daytime. So God appearing as a pillar of cloud, some respite from that heat. And at night, in the darkness, the pillar of fire gives them light and warmth as the air chills. So we see that God is a protective God. 
Then Moses goes up to Mount Horeb and he receives the law. Rules about sacrifices and about the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle and the temple that we read about today are very similar. They serve the exact same purpose, but the tabernacle was a tent. It was the tent of meeting for God that had to travel because Israel was traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. That temple would eventually be exchanged, excuse me, the tabernacle would eventually be exchanged for the temple itself. That would become the dwelling place when Israel was permanent in their land. And so we see once the tabernacle is created, The scripture reads, Exodus 34 reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle and resides in the Holy of Holies. The passage we read today is about how once they've entered into the land, they've established themselves, they make Jerusalem the capital, Solomon builds the house for God, he builds the temple. And this is what we read as we see the glory of the Lord moving into the temple to reside on the Ark of the Covenant. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So, This is the depiction of that Shekinah glory cloud moving and taking residence, God's presence in the holy place. God wants to be among us. He has been among us. And he was in the tabernacle. He was in the temple for about 800 years with Israel. And what we see is in this temple and in the tabernacle that God is showing us many, many truths about who he is, but more importantly, about how we can have access to him. So as we look at that tabernacle, we see that there is an outer court, or called the inner court, 
Then you have the underneath the tent of the tabernacle, or you have what's called the holy place. Then there's the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. There are many like Jake G.K. Beale who have shown how, in many ways, this whole temple outline shows creation. The courtyard being our earth, the holy place being heavens, and the holy of holies, the ultimate heavenly place, dwelling place of God himself. And that this was pictured in this way to show as God fills the temple, that God wants to fill the earth with his glory, just as stated in the original creation. But we'll note that this gives us the picture of the access to God. So one would enter through the doorway to the brazen altar. And this is where priests would sacrifice the animals, the various sacrifices, many of them, for the sin, for our guilt. So the sin offering is placed there, and then the priest would move to the, they call it the brazen sea in the temple. It was called the bronze laver in the tabernacle. And there they would wash themselves. So they would wash their hands, they'd wash their feet, to picture the purity that they needed in order to enter into the holy place. So we see there needed to be a sacrifice that was cleansing of their sin before they could enter into the holy place. And on one side, there were ten menorahs, ten lampstands. These lampstands lit the way for the priests in their service to God. But they also pictured truth about God. They pictured the truth that God himself is the light. That we only see life as it should be through the eyes of God. That he's the one that is the ground and foundation of truth itself. On the other side, we had ten tables of bread Tabernacle, there was only one of each of these. Temple, the bread, the table of show bread is where the, the bread that the priests ate to nourish themselves. But this also pictured that God is our true nourishment. He is the nourishment of our spirit. He is the bread of life. And then in front of this veil that separated the from the Holy of Holies was an altar of incense. And the priests would offer the fragrant aroma to God during the morning and the evening and then all through the night. And the morning and the evening were the exact times that the sacrifices were given. And so it showed that these sacrifices were to be a pleasing aroma to God himself. They also showed, the, were a demonstration of the prayers of the priest to God and showed how God desires communion, personal relationship with us. 
And then there was the veil. The veil to separate sinful man from holy God. And only one man could enter through that veil, the high priest, only one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. That day who would bring the blood of the sacrifices through the curtain and place it on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark being surrounded by two giant cherubim. The angels that were guarding the flame in the Garden of Eden. Representative of those who guarded, cherished God's holiness. And so, the blood offering placed on the mercy seat, the ark being the seat where God resided, showed that our sins being forgiven satisfied the holiness of God. So, not only did the temple bring the presence of God to the people, it showed the way to God so that we could stand in his presence. I think this is beautifully pictured in the vision of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atoned for. So do you see this picture taking place in the temple? The temple was there to show us the holiness of God. Isaiah experienced it in this vision. He saw the unbridled holiness of God. The glory that filled the earth. His response was immediately to see his own sinfulness. Not only does he see that he is a sinner, but he says, Woe is me, another translation, I am ruined because I am a sinner. The temple is to bring us the presence of God, to understand the holiness of God, that, but also to see our sinfulness prevents us from that presence of God. 
it puts us in a place where we are condemned before God. But vision doesn't end there. The seraph goes to the altar, representing the sacrifice for sin, touches the lips of Isaiah and says, your sins are forgiven. The whole temple system is to show us that it's possible for our sins to be forgiven when there is a substitutionary sacrifice, one who takes our place, takes our sin, so that we can be forgiven and stand before God and then serve God. So, desires to be with us. It's our sin that obstructs God's presence. Uh, We see this in the tent of meeting itself. Exodus 30, verse 20 says, When the priests go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they will wash with water so that they may not die. Do we really want the unbridled presence of God? Because we as sinners, if we enter it, even the priests themselves would die unless we are cleansed from our sins. Moses, same experience. He's he's up on Mount Oreb, and he wants to experience God to the fullest. He wants to see God's unbridled presence. And in Exodus 33, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. No, I don't think we want the unbridled presence of God here. None of us would stand. And even when God did give the picture of himself, that didn't bring people into a vital faith where they wanted to follow God and to serve God. The, the pillar of cloud and fire led Israel through the wilderness. God provided manna for them miraculously and quail. He brought water out of a rock. The presence of God was probably not, uh, no, not as vitally shown over a vast period of time as their experience was. And what's their response? They grumble. They complain. Bread's not good enough. We need the quail. Uh, but this is shown most clearly when God brings them to the edge of the promised land. They send in spies. The spies come back. They all say, this land is everything that God promised and more. It is great. Ten of the spies weren't so excited about going in because they saw how large the enemy was. Now, notice the response of the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 1. You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt 
to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Okay, here is a people who lived in the presence of God. What did they think about God? God hates us. You see, it isn't the presence of God that makes the difference. It's the condition of our hearts. Moses, Joshua, and and Caleb saw the presence of God, and they said, let's go. God has cared for us. He's been with us. He's carried us like a mother carries her child. Let's go. The same presence was there for the people, and they conclude God hates us. Their hearts were different. It wouldn't make a difference. It might lead people to believe he exists. But it wouldn't lead them to God himself and wanting, wanting to be with him. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a parable to help answer the question of why doesn't God show himself? Uh, there's two men die, uh, Lazarus, poor man, and man described as the rich man. They both go into uh, Sheol, but the poor man is in the bosom of Abraham. It's really paradise, whereas the rich man is suffering. And after he realizes there's a chasm, he says, well, if, if I can't, you know, If my pain can't be uh, assuaged, then at least go up and let let, let uh, Lazarus come alive again. Go up and tell my brothers so they won't suffer like I do. Because if they see Lazarus, they'll believe in God. If we could just see God in a special way, if he just jumped through our hoops as we want, we'd really believe in him. And Jesus' response is, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. But Jesus is saying, it's not about what you're seeing. It's about the condition of your heart. There are those who read Moses and the prophets, those who accept the testimony of those who've gone before them, with whom this resonates in their hearts and they're going to believe regardless of what they see. But the condition of other hearts, are, it doesn't matter what they see. They're not, going to, they're not going to believe to the point where they want to follow God. For them, the presence of God would be a horror story, not a beautiful presentation. And we see that because it's the condition of our hearts that determine how we view God. God is a God who is always there. God is a God who has given us commands to lead us. But how is that taken? Looking at one of the uh, best-known atheists of our period, said Christopher Hitchens put it like this. I think it would be rather awful if it were true that there is a God. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and investigation of everything you did, 
You would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. This is the God of, that, that he sees in the Bible. If there was a God, he would not want that God to exist. And that's uh, Michael Reeves' commentary on that statement. He says, for Hitchens, God is the ruler in so much by definition a Stalin in the sky, a big brother watching over you. And who in their right mind would ever want such a being to exist? In other words, the atheist problem is not so much with the existence of God as with the character of God. Atheist whose heart is bent that way would live feeling oppressed if God was visibly present with them. But see, the heart that is open sees God, the same God, in a very different way. Michael Reeves describes this. The picture changes entirely if God is fundamentally the most kind and loving Father and only ever exercises his rule as who he is as a father. In that case, living under the roof is not like living in North Korea at all, but like living in the household of the sort of caring father that Hitchens himself wished for. We're saying it's the same God. He's there always. It can be oppressive. He's keeping his thumb on you. Or it could be life-giving. He is always there. He knows everything, still receives us, still forgives us because of Christ is always there watching over us, caring for us. The commands of God, they are oppressive or they are life-giving because expression of God's character to us, how to live in a joyful relationship with him. It's not the presence of God, it's the condition of our heart. The temple shows us God, and it shows us the way to God. That way is not through the blood of bulls and goats. Bulls and goats can't take the place of a human being. To substitute for me, I need a person to take my place. The sacrifice can't be an animal. The sacrifice to take our place has to be a person. And he has to be unblemished, has to be sinless. But he has to be more than a man. Because one man can only take the place of one man. But if he wants, God wants the sacrifice to take the place of for everyone, he has to be more than a man. He has to be near infinite in his personhood. And there is only one who is infinite in his personhood, and that is God. The sacrifice has to be God who becomes man and lives a sinless life.
That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. God did do that. He came to this world, became man, to show us God, but to give us the way to God. The book of Hebrews says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. God wants to be with us. The question is, do we want to be with him? He's the way to be with us through Jesus Christ. I want to quote Pastor Brandon again from last week. God's intention is to be with his people. The climax of, climax of that desire the centerpiece of his grand plan, what ultimately makes it possible for a holy God to dwell with his sinful people, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The angel said to Mary, she will bear a son. Excuse me, said this to Joseph. <laughs> she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Father, may these words ring in our hearts Flow from our lips in this season where we celebrate the incarnation, the celebration of God with us. Amen.